If you have your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 8. We are working our way through the book of uh, Acts, kind of chapter by chapter. This is our, our eighth week in a series called The Mission to Save the World. And uh, we're kind of taking a little bit bigger chunks than we normally would if we were working our way through a, a sort of a New Testament epistle or one of the Gospels. We might take smaller sections, but we're trying to keep the big story in mind as we look at these individual scenes. Uh, if you are new with us, or perhaps even your first time, this is what we do. We, we worship God by singing together, uh, sometimes by reciting catechism together, by speaking together. Uh, but we want to do more than just speak. We also want to listen. And we believe that when the Word is rightly proclaimed, that God Himself speaks. And we want to lean in and we want to hear what, what God has to say. And so we are, again, we're in the book of Acts chapter 8. A few years ago, a different church developed a really deep friendship with a, a man, I guess he was about 10 years my junior, and he was a man from, uh, who, who came to the United States from Ethiopia. His name was Tomine. Uh, Tomine came over to Southern California to, to work on a PhD. And he was a man that, again, I worked with in a variety of capacities that just ended up really loving and becoming friends with. And Tomine was a guy who, who, can, who we could say experienced much grief in his life. He saw family members succumb to death, uh, people that he loved got uh, terrible illnesses, saw persecution uh, in the church from radical Muslims in, in his area. And so he was a man who saw a lot of persecution, experienced grief. When he came to the United States, uh, he and his wife had two boys, both with autism. And the plan was for Tomine to come to Southern California, get his PhD, and go back and be one of the leaders there in Ethiopia. But what he realized was, um, if you have a child with special needs, uh, if you go to some places in, in the world, those, those children are treated as subhuman. And they're not given the care, the respect, and the, the treatment that they should get. So ultimately, he decided that he was going to stay around in the United States. And he and I, we would pray together. We'd get together and pray. We'd sit outside. We'd pray in my office. And one day, he asked me if I would read a book with him, read and discuss a book with him, which I was glad to do. And the book that, that Tom and he asked me to read was called uh, Old Paths, New Power, and it was a book by Daniel Henderson, which really calls the church back to the paradigm of the New Testament. These two predominant uh, uh, habits of the, old, of the New Testament, that were prayer and proclamation. And so we're, we're reading this book together, and in it, Daniel Henderson writes this, For every gospel-motivated action, there is an opposite and devious demonic reaction. We see this in the book of Acts. It appears in church history. We experience it in our own personal journeys. The gospel revolution began when the Spirit empowered the resurrection witness on the day of Pentecost. Thousands were converted, baptized, and enfolded in a matter of hours. In the following days, thousands more would convert. Multiplying masses become a part of the believing assembly of Christ's followers. But, he goes on to point out, rightly, Satan did not roll over. He reloaded. In Acts 4, he attacked via persecution. In Acts 5, through corruption. In Acts 6, a more subtle snare emerged as the enemy sought to promote division and distraction. I guess it's a principle in physics, right? Every action prompts an opposite reaction. Well, the same is true in theology. When the kingdom is advancing into places where the gospel, there's no gospel witness, then of course the powers of darkness would rebel most strongly against it. Now, we've seen various threats to the church in the first seven chapters of Acts, 
And it's fair to say that many of those threats are actually have been leveled by or spurred by the evil one and his minions. But it's not only supernatural threats that would oppose the church. In Acts chapter 3, is again, working with this this week, trying to make sense of this big section, what we see really is, are three potential threats, three potential uh, barriers to the extension of the church. And these are, not, these are actually barriers that I think that are prompted by human sin and, and human uh, greed. And so I say potential barriers to the extension of the church because in each case the Holy Spirit will prevail. The Holy Spirit would conquer those barriers. But I think what it will say to us is, what it shows us is that the Spirit of God is always at work in advancing, protecting, growing the church, even strengthening and securing the believers individually. And I hope that it will deepen our faith as we see uh, the power of the Spirit at work. So uh, we'll cover Acts chapter 8. I'm not going to read every single verse, but let me begin by uh, reading verses 1 through 3. Here reads the word of the Lord. And Saul approved of his execution. This is a reference to Stephen's uh, execution last week. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So Stephen, as we saw this last week, Stephen, the first martyr for the Christian church, was he, he's, he's being stoned. People are throwing rocks at him that would eventually claim his life. And while this is going on, he's looking up into heaven, and God gives him a vision. He gives him a glimpse into heaven, pulls the curtain back, so to speak, and allows Stephen to see not just heaven, but Jesus Christ at the right hand of God. Well, Saul was there. Now, we're going to later see him as Paul, one of the great apostles. But Saul was there, and he endorsed this whole thing. In fact, he was actually watching over the clothing, the cloaks of those who were doing the murderous acts, uh, killing Stephen. And then immediately after that, Saul would go, and he would go into the homes of those who were followers of the way, and he would drag them out and he would throw them into prison. If you're a student of church history, you know this is really when the widespread persecution of the church began in earnest. We've already seen, of course, the apostles who have been thrown in prison, but this is when it begins to circulate and becomes more broad. The church is being persecuted, and Saul is going about wreaking havoc on the church. Now, look at verses 4 through 8. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Uh, by God's sovereignty... Stephen, that the murder of Stephen would set in motion the scattering of the church. And Philip, who is who's one of Stephen's friends, he would go to the area of Samaria. Now, unless we understand a little bit of history, we don't understand how shocking this actually is. The Jews and the Samaritans had a visceral sort of hatred. They could not stand each other, and that hatred had grown over 700 plus years. 721 B.C., uh, the king of Assyria would lay, lay siege to 
the city of Samaria, which was the capital of Israel, and burn houses to the ground, uh, basically demolish the city of Samaria. And most of the Jewish people at that time, the people of Israel, were scattered. So you've probably heard about uh, the lost ten tribes. The people of Israel were scattered. They, they fled. They were refugees. But some of the people remained. Not everybody left. Some of the people remained, and they were servants. And when, when the king of Assyria would send his own people in, some, some, it was his own people and some Babylonians and Cuthites and so on, he sent his own people. And those remaining Jewish people actually intermarried with the foreigners who had come in. And not only did they intermarry with them, they began to adopt the pagan practices that the Syrians uh, would, uh, would bring into their land. And so as a result, over time, those people of Israel lost their identity as Israelites and they became known as half-Jew and half-Gentile. And the Palestinian Jews in Jerusalem and that whole area, they, again, they absolutely hated the Samaritans. They called them half-breeds and schismatics. And if you were to try to think of the greatest insult that you could, you could level against a Jewish person in Jerusalem, you would call them a Samaritan. That was the worst thing you could say. And actually this hatred, which went back many, many years, it was, there was a lot of spite that, was, that went into this. The Samaritans were accused of going into the temple, the Jewish temple in uh, the Passover, and scattering bones along the hallways and corridors to, to defile the temple. Again, they were, they, there was a lot of spite and, and hatred in between those two. And so, again, the, the, that relationship, that hatred had really blossomed over hundreds of years. To call a Jewish person a Samaritan was the worst insult you could hurl. When Jesus had this heated exchange with the crowd in John 8, they get really frustrated with him and they say, You Samaritan devil, didn't we say all along that you were possessed by a demon? So keep this in mind. Jews hated Samaritans. Samaritans despised Jews. Philip is a Jew with a Greek name. He's one of the Hellenists. And he is going into this region where he expects probably that he's going to be very poorly received. But what happens is the opposite. They receive him. They listen to him. They listen to the message of the gospel. And all of a sudden, this incredible revival breaks out. There's healings and miracles and signs and wonders. And men, women, and children in Samaria put their faith in the risen Christ, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And so we, it's an incredible thing that happens. Uh, the salvation of so many leads, we're told in verse 8, to much joy in that city. An entire city goes through revival and is transformed by the gospel, where one person, a despised person based on racial and ethnic background, goes in, receives, and the gospel does great work. Here's the first point, this is the first potential barrier that we see the Spirit overcoming. Racial division is an historic and ongoing threat to the extension of the church. But the gospel can drive it out. It's no secret, I'm sure you realize this, there's a lot of racial tension in our country. And it's gotten so bad and so tense that in many situations it's very difficult to have even conversations without one side or the other being misunderstood. Or, and so this is, this is going on. But we see throughout Acts, we're going to see more as we get along in the New Testament letters, that the gospel drives out 
racial animosity. When we talk about the gospel, we, we naturally focus on, I think rightly, the vertical dimension to it. And that is, because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we, sinful, broken humanity, can be reconciled to a perfect and holy God. And this is the greatest news that anyone can ever announce to anyone. What makes the gospel such great news is that it tells us, it announces that we can actually know the living God. We can be known by Him. We can be loved by Him. We can be rescued and forgiven by Him. See, apart from Christ, you and I stand guilty and without excuse before the throne of the perfect judge of the universe. Apart from Christ, you and I stand as condemned sinners who fall hopelessly short of the glory of God. But in Christ, we are completely and totally forgiven. Regardless of what we've done, through His death and resurrection, Jesus has taken on our punishment. The sinless one takes on the, deser- the punishment that the sinful deserve. And because of that, we are justified, declared righteous before God. Now, if there is a song that should stick in our heads, it's this one. You ever get a, you ever get a, listen to the radio or something, you have a song that's stuck in your head for the rest of the day? This happens to me all the time. I don't know if it's a, a defect in my wiring or what, but if I hear a song, it's, yesterday it was a song by Willie Nelson to my wife's uh, chagrin, and I could not get this song out of my head. And so I'm singing it, and, and I thought I was doing a pretty good Willie Nelson impression, but my wife said, listen to anything else. I don't care, Lady Gaga, whatever it is, listen to anything else. Just get that song out of your head. For the, for the Christian, so before we come to Christ, before we're reconciled to God, there is a song that's repeating in our heads. We may not realize it, but the song goes something like this. Will you ever do enough? Can you ever do enough? Will you ever be enough? Will it ever be enough? But when we put our faith in Christ, the song that is running through our heads is Christ has been enough for us. We stand approved and accepted by God on account of Christ. So this is the beautiful vertical dimension of the gospel. In Christ, the hostility between broken, sinful man has been addressed. It has been removed. In Christ, we are made to be guests at the Father's table, children of the Creator. In Christ, God has given us a full pardon, complete forgiveness, a total transformed and renewed heart. Once a rebel against Him, now, now we can call Him Abba, Father, and we have a seat at His table forever. There's also, though, a horizontal benefit to the gospel. The Apostle Paul would point to this in his letter to the Ephesians. In it, he writes this, Ephesians 2, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. There's the, the vertical dimension. But then he says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So the gospel doesn't just reconcile broken, sinful humanity to the perfect God through the work of Christ. It also reconciles sinful men to sinful men, sinful women to sinful women, men, women, and children who are broken. God redeems us and he makes us one. So all those who trust in Christ become members of the same first family. So in Christ, the most important thing about you, the single most important thing about you is not where you're from, 
It's not the color of your skin. It's not your family background or lineage. It's not what you've accomplished or not accomplished. It's not what's been done to you. The most important thing about you is, yes, it's your bloodline. But it's not what you might expect. It's the blood that was shed on the cross that unites a people with the most common and the most incredible bond that any people could ever experience. Now, what this means very practically is, in the church, it's no more Jew versus Gentile, no more black versus white, no more us versus them. All of that hostility is crucified and done away with in Christ's perfect life, death, and resurrection. And so now as new creation, it's not as though we don't see, we don't recognize people who look different than we do. But now we see everyone, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, in Christ. We regard no one according to the flesh. But when I see someone, I see a fellow image bearer of God who is worthy of respect, honor, love, dignity, appreciation, protection, all of those things. This is what we have in Christ. So when I see myself accurately as a helpless sinner who did nothing to save himself, someone who was loved, when I didn't deserve it, forgiven when I didn't deserve it, accepted when I didn't deserve it, then I can't possibly see anyone else, regardless of any difference we may have. I can't see anybody else as less than. I can't see myself as someone who got it and they didn't get it. I have to see everyone, again, you've heard that, on the same level at the cross where we are one in Christ. So the gospel this one potential threat to the church as the church begins to grow and expand, this racial barrier will be obliterated. Now, there's another barrier. When Philip is in Samaria, he encounters a guy by the name of Simon who was a magician. He was known as Simon Magus or Simon the Sorcerer. He was a bit like David Copperfield or David Blaine, not in the sort of stunts that he pulled, but in the fact that he was an illusionist. He had no real power. He had no supernatural power in himself. And he knew this, although the people around him didn't know it. He knew this. He knew that he had no, no special power. And so when he sees what's going on, all these miracles that are being performed, and he hears what Stephen is preaching, this message of forgiveness in Jesus Christ, verse 13 says, Quote, he believed. So he hangs up his dice or magic hats or rabbits or whatever they used back then, and he starts to become a sidekick of Stephen. He even gets baptized. Well, word started to spread about this incredible revival going on in Samaria. So the other, the other apostles who were in Jerusalem, they hear about it, and they go see what's going on themselves. Look at verses 14 through 17. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had uh, only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now this is a very difficult section, and there's been uh, you know, much debate over the centuries about what this means we know from the rest of scriptures and even the book of Acts that, that when the Holy Spirit came down at Pentecost, that every single believer, every person who trusted in Christ was filled with the Holy Spirit. They were indwelled, permanently indwelled by the Holy Spirit. So why would Luke, who wrote Acts here, say that the Holy Spirit had not fallen on the folks at Samaria? 
Well, again, there are several takes, and I'm not going to give you all the different interpretations, but I believe what's happening here is because of the racial and ethnic hatred, because of the division between the Jews and the Samaritans, in order for the Samaritans to truly believe that they were one, that they were part of this church, part of this growing church, again, which made up mostly of Jews at that time, the Samaritans needed confirmation. And the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, accompanied by great signs and miracles, that was confirmation. In other words, through the laying on of hands, the Holy Spirit was showing these Samaritans that they are a real important part of the church, just as precious, just as valuable as their Jewish counterparts. Well, Simon the sorcerer, he sees all this, and he wants in on the action. Look at verses 18 through 25. Now, when Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before the Lord." Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Stephen answered, or Simon rather, answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now, I want you to notice what Simon the sorcerer is most concerned about. That is, that nothing bad happens to him. This is hardly the disposition of a broken man who's trusting in Christ alone. You, you may have noticed if you follow sports, I don't know, three or four weeks ago, there was, so Cam Newton is a quarterback in the NFL, and they were having a, a practice, a spring practice that was open to the public. It was outside. It's called a seven-on-seven, seven, and they were doing drills and so on. And at this practice, while Cam Newton, this veteran in the NFL, is doing his thing, there's a teenager, a teenage high school uh, kid who plays football, who is heckling Cam Newton. And it starts out fairly, you know, sort of uh, unoffensive, but then it becomes personal. And so he's saying things. He's heckling Cam Newton. He's, he's attacking him personally and so on. Well, you know, as with anything else these days, uh, anything you do can be caught on camera, right? So somebody was, was taking a video of this particular exchange, and it went viral. Well, this high school kid, you know, of course, he's starting to get all kinds of uh, hate uh, email, and his social media is filled with all kinds of stuff. So he goes on Twitter, his own Twitter account, and he apologizes. So this is what he said in his apology. He says, first, I would like to start off by saying my parents never taught me to be disrespectful. As a football player, I let the competitive side get the best of me, and it was, what does he call it? It was a huge miscommunication. It was, it was in the midst of the moment, and I realize now how a lot of you took it as disrespect. I never meant to humiliate and let anyone down. I realize that this can dictate my future as a young man having very big dreams and goals, but I will not allow this to stop me from getting where I need to be. Now, I have no idea what this, this kid's heart, and this could have been, this could have been a, a, you know, a, a, a gesture of true contrition. I mean, he could have been really broken by what he did. But this apology 
it smacks of the sort of thing that we see all the time among celebrities and sports, uh, and even in our own hearts, the, the very apologies that we offer. Well, the Apostle Paul talks about, in a different letter, the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. And he says, worldly sorrow does not lead to repentance, but actually ultimately leads to death. Godly sorrow leads to repentance unto salvation. This is 2 Corinthians 7, if you want to look at it later. And so what what the Apostle Paul is saying is there is a sort of sorrow, there is a sort of grief that really is not the same as repentance. What What is the person sorry for? I'm sorry that I got caught. I'm sorry that I embarrassed my family. I'm sorry for all the work that I now have to put in to restore this relationship. Uh, I'm sorry that we still have to talk about this. When godly sorrow leads to a sort of revulsion of sin that leads to a brokenness and a contrition whereby the person says, I am so sorry. I am heartbroken. I wish I wouldn't have done that. I'm grieved at the soul level that I have rebelled against and sinned against God and that I've hurt you. And I think it is a fair time for us to pause for a moment and say, when you apologize to someone, would it be characterized as worldly sorrow or godly sorrow that you're experiencing? Are you sorry because all the stuff you have to go through now because you've hurt that person? Are you sorry because you were caught? Are you sorry because you just have to deal with this again? Or are you really broken because you've hurt this other person? You've, you've, you've sinned against the God who redeemed you. Worldly sorrow causes us to be upset about being caught. It produces anxiety and frustration and great concern about the consequences. Godly sorrow produces a revulsion to our own sin that leads us to Jesus and His cross. Well, Simon the sorcerer was experiencing, by all accounts, worldly sorrow. Again, what does he say to the apostles in verse 24? Pray for me to the Lord that nothing bad happens to me. He just wants to make sure that he doesn't have to suffer because of what he's thought or said. His trust was not in Jesus and his resurrection. Simon was looking to advance his own career as a more powerful sorcerer. He's thinking, you know, I was making pretty good money to begin with, and all this stuff was just an illusion. What if I actually really had power? So this is what he wants to do. Now, Simon was not the first person uh, to make false profession. We see this uh, in John chapter 2. A lot of people were told, wanted to follow Jesus. They say, Lord Jesus, we're going to follow you. And we're told in John 2, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. Many have made false professions, and many more will. But none of those insincere conversions will ever hinder the extension of the church, the Holy Spirit is in the business of making people alive in Christ and advancing God's kingdom. Here's the second potential barrier overcome by the Spirit. This is our second point. False professions have always plagued the church, but they do not negate the reality of conversion. Now, what I'm talking about by false confessions is what some theologians refer to as transitory faith. This is the person who early on really seems to be on fire for Jesus. And maybe they've come down at the end of a service, they've walked an aisle, maybe they prayed a prayer at a campfire, at a Christian camp, maybe at home in a room in the house. They pray the prayer and they give every indication initially that they actually are putting their faith in Christ. But over time, what's revealed is 
What they're really trusting in is their own goodness, their own ability, their, their self-reliance. And there are always going to be people like this. There are always If you've paid any attention to what's going on in the, the, so the evangelical world, the, the, we see in the last two or three years, many people, some celebrities, well-known pastors have come out and they've renounced the faith. Joshua Harris is a guy who wrote Christian books. And I was at a conference with, I don't know, 7,000 people several years ago in, in Chicago, and he was one of the preachers there, and he was a phenomenal preacher, led a church, a mega church in Maryland. And then a couple of years ago, he said, you know what? I'm done with it all. And he said on his Instagram, I am not a Christian. Not anymore. Marty Sampson, a guy who wrote songs for Hillsong, one of the leaders of Hillsong worship, renounced his faith, and then turned around and said, no, I'm not renouncing my faith, and sort of got kind of torn in the middle. And what do we do with Robbie Zacharias, right? Here's a guy who, he was to apologetics what, what Billy Graham was to evangelism. Here's a guy that people were, they were listening to, coming to saving faith, learning how to defend their own faith. And then we find out after his death that so much of what he did, it was, it was, all, it was all a false life, a double life. What do we do with those situations? Well, this is nothing new. Jesus says, talks about this in the parable of the soils. He says, there are some seeds that will take root right away and sprout up and grow, but they don't last. The sun will scorch them. The cares of the world will, will, will kill them. He said, this has happened. Perhaps the most frightening example, I think, in all of history may be Judas Iscariot. Here's a guy who walked with the Lord Jesus for almost three years, followed him around, had dinner after dinner after dinner, listened to Jesus' teaching face-to-face, had one-on-one time with Jesus, and then sells out Jesus for a bag full of money. We see this all the time. Now, only the Lord knows uh, you know, a person's true heart condition, but there will always be those who show great signs, but their faith is not a genuine faith. Jesus makes it clear there will be plenty. In fact, Matthew 7, Jesus says, Oh, there are so many people who are going to come to me and they're going to say, Lord Jesus, didn't you see all the things that I did for you? Didn't you see all the great things I did? And Jesus will say to them, what? Depart from me. I never knew you. So there are always going to be people who have that sort of spurious faith. There are always going to be people who make a profession of faith, but ultimately reveal that they were not trusting in Jesus and his cross work. But even in the midst of those, the Holy Spirit continues to make people alive, to bring people to saving faith. And the existence of false professions will never derail the progress of the church. The Holy Spirit will not allow it. In fact, we see it in the book of Acts. Even after Simon's spurious faith confession, many, many more people are added to the kingdom. I like what Al Mohler says about this. He says, reflecting the Bible, the historic Protestant confessions make very clear the biblical truth that even though after conversion and coming to faith in Christ, after regeneration, one may sin, and indeed will sin. This is, is this not our personal experience? And may even grievously injure the church. It is impossible for one who has been truly regenerated to then fall back away from Christ and to be severed from Him. There may be even some who sin by repudiating Christianity, But if they were ever genuinely Christian, they will return by repentance at some point. And that is a gospel promise. I'm I'm just as encouraged, more encouraged by what Gerhardus Voss says about this. 
He says, the best proof that Christ will never cease to love us lies in that He never began. This is His, interpreta- his, his uh, interpretation of Jeremiah 31, where God says to, about His own people, His chosen people, I have loved you with an everlasting love. So we say, the, the, the God who has loved us before we were created, who has lavished upon us His covenantal affection, he, He's always loved us. And He will never, ever stop loving us. And so if you're here this morning and maybe you're, you're worried, where do I stand before God? What, what do I make about this? Well, if you put your faith in Jesus, if you've come to the end of your rope where you've tried to save yourself and do the best you can, if you put your faith in Jesus, you don't have to worry about what will happen to you or whether you will persevere. Christ will keep you to Himself. It's like the song we sing here. He will hold me fast. Christ will hold me fast. You say, well, what about these other people? I mean, didn't they believe? Didn't they think they were secure? Well, the answer is those who ultimately and finally fall away show that they never really turn from their own self-reliance, their own self-salvation project, so to speak, and they never trusted in Jesus and His cross work. And I think probably a good time for us all to ask the question, in whom Am I really trusting today? In what am I really trusting? Am I trusting in Christian leaders? Am I trusting in Christian celebrities? Am I trusting in my favorite preacher? Am I trusting in my own works? Am I trusting that my mom and dad were Christians? Am I trusting the fact that I've been a part of this church for as long as I can remember? Or are we really trusting in the work of Jesus? Look at verses 26 through 35. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, Do you understand what you were reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, uh, about whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this, about himself or someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So Philip is on his way toward Gaza from Jerusalem, and he runs into this man from Ethiopia. And there's no doubt that this man sticks out like a sore thumb. He's riding in a chariot that's no doubt uh, complemented by all kinds of regal uh, it's got, it's got the, the uh, banners and the bright colors and all the things that would reflect an envoy of the queen. So he stands out. And we think about this, by the way, don't think about, when you think about this chariot, don't think chariots of fire. Don't think you know, the, the Budweiser Super Bowl commercial for a few years ago. This is actually, not, this is a slow-moving sort of uh, single-horse chariot that just barely creeps along. It's like uh, we watched as a family a few weeks ago, the, this Tom Hanks movie, News of the World. And it's like, it's, a, it's like that. It's a slow-moving chariot. And 
in, in it sits this member of the house of Candace, this representative of the queen of, uh, of Ethiopia, uh, the queen there, Candace, and they worshipped, there they worshipped the queen as a descendant of the sun god. And so this is someone who was said to have been the daughter of the sun, right? A great uh, premier god where they believed in, in pantheism, where there are all kinds of gods and gods were everywhere and there were gods of the earth and the sky and the sun and the sea and pleasure and pain and so on. And this Ethiopian man was devoted to his kinsman and the queen, Candace. In fact, he was so devoted that he'd been surgically emasculated as a way to show his undying loyalty. And the reason men would do this back then is because um, he would build trust by the king or queen in that they would not be dissuaded, they would not be tempted uh, sexually. So you can only imagine this guy's frustration when he realized that he'd gotten it all wrong and the queen was not God. If there's ever a mistake you want to make as a man and realize it later, it's not that mistake. Because that's one you can't undo. So here he is. He's, he understands this for the first time. He's brought to saving faith. In fact, his faith is, is so evident that, that Philip will go and baptize him in, an, in a little uh, patch of water they see. And so he's got this saving faith. He places his trust in Jesus. And then, miraculously after that, Philip would disappear. The, the Spirit takes him somewhere else. But, what, but I want you to know a key phrase in this story. When Philip asked the Ethiopian eunuch, or when the, Ethiop, the eunuch asked Philip about this, what he's reading, and he says, in verse 31, the eunuch said, How can I understand this unless someone guides me? How could he understand who Jesus is? How could he understand this, the, the magnitude and and breadth of God's salvation unless someone would show him who the Christ is and how this all fits together. Now here's the final barrier that the Spirit of God is and will continue to overcome. It's our final point. The lack of leaders in the church, and we could even insert there the global church in particular, will not stop its expansion, its extension. The Holy Spirit is always raising up new shepherds. So one of the most pressing needs of the church uh, are leaders, new leaders. There are places in the world where, where the Christian faith is growing at an unbelievable pace. I'm thinking about places like Iran, uh, Nepal, Somalia, Afghanistan, uh, northern India, southern India. There are places in the world where Christianity is growing so fast as the Holy Spirit is doing revivals, but what's the problem? All these new converts have no one to lead them. Who's going to lead them? Who's going to shepherd them? This is why we partner with organizations. And we're, there's a new one we're going to partner with soon here that, that actually trains up and develops national leaders and pastors so they can go and plant other churches and develop other leaders. You say, well, that's over there. Well, there's actually a great dearth of leaders in the Christian church in North America. There's a trend now, and you can read about this. Jimmy Long's written a great book called The Leadership Gap. There's a trend now, part of it's generational, part of it's social media and so on. But, but there are fewer and fewer people who are willing to lead in anything. You know, you, you think about the cancel culture, you think about social media, you think about one mistake, it's videoed, and it's all over the internet. Fewer and fewer people are willing to lead. But here's the reality. Every disciple of Jesus is a disciple maker. And every disciple maker is a leader. 
Now, it doesn't mean everybody has to lead big ministries. It doesn't mean everybody has to lead a church. But we're all called to lead people, to point people to the risen Christ, to lead people to an understanding of who Jesus is, what this gospel is all about, and how people can be reconciled to God. As Dave, one of our elders, mentioned, we, we met together six hours yesterday uh, as elders, and much of our discussion centered on how are we going to make disciples who make other disciples? How are we going to equip people to do evangelism in their neighborhoods? How are we going to empower people to lead other people? How are we going to continue to, to equip people for this multiplying mission that Christ has, has called His followers on? And we have plenty of stuff that we'll be presenting later on in terms of what we're working on and thinking about. But we have to come to this realization. This is how this all fits together. Remember we talked last week, the previous weeks, about the, the boldness and the courage that the Christ follower can have? If we are in Christ, then what this means is even if we're rejected by our neighbor, even if we, 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 lose, uh, we lose credibility at work because we, we're, we're talking about Jesus, even if people that we know and love say, as I know people have suffered through their own families, say, you know what, I'm done with you, you're dead to me. We have been accepted and approved and loved by the King of Kings. And that acceptance is in Christ, so it's never changing. So we should be the most bold and the most courageous and the most daring of all people. Because what do we want in the end? We want people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, every culture and every corner of the world to be able to say through Jesus Christ, O Lord my God, how great Thou art. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Help us as we sing this classic hymn together to remember and to reflect on your beauty and your power and your glory and your salvation. And I pray, Lord, that as we reflect on these things, where we were when you rescued us, what, sh what sort of shape we were in when you delivered us and you brought us to saving faith, cause it, Lord. To stir our hearts with worship. And not just worship alone, but a real active desire and an active effort to show other people, to point other people to the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. To introduce other people to you, God, this great, majestic, holy, and awesome King. Give us the grace to do what you call us to do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.